to repent before the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And that call to repentance, that final warning, comes not from nature or the forces of evil, but from the church. Now, again, I trust you realize not everyone views Revelation the way I do. And there's much controversy about the message of chapters 10 and 11. But for the sake of brevity and to avoid confusion, I'm going to present to you only my conclusions this morning. I encourage you to study it out for yourselves, and I'll be happy to supply you with alternative interpretations if you want them. But for now, just consider what I have to say and see if it makes sense to you. In the 10th chapter, I believe we find a dramatic presentation of the Great Commission, Revelation 10. And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. In the midst of the horrors of sin... What is the church to be doing? We've already seen that she is to be patiently enduring, waiting for Christ's return. But is that all the church is to be doing, just waiting? Absolutely not. We've got a message to share with a world that's being destroyed by the consequences of sin. We've got something to say to the individuals who are tormented by the grief of guilt. We've got the answer to the problem of sin. If they'll only listen, and if we'll have the courage to proclaim it. I believe that is the primary message 
of this chapter. After John had seen a vision of armies stirred to action by angels of war, he saw another angel that had obviously been in the presence of God and his son, a strong angel clothed with a cloud framed by a rainbow, shining like the sun with flaming feet on both land and sea. An angel that had a message for the entire world, a message contained in a little book that he held in his hand, a book by the way, that was already open, not a scroll that had been sealed up. This angel then cried out with a loud voice, and when he did, seven peals of thunder spoke. Now, whether he had called upon them to speak or they interrupted him, we can't be sure. I tend to think they interrupted him and the message he was about to deliver. What they said, we can only surmise. Because when John was about to write down the message, they declared, a voice from heaven, presumably from God himself, said, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them down. Now, thunder most often signifies what? A warning. So perhaps what John heard was another seven warnings to unrepentant man. If that's what John heard, apparently God felt man had had enough warnings. There was no need for any more. All man needed to know could be found in the little book in the angel's hand. So he raised the book and declared with the full authority of God that there should be no more delays, no more warnings, that there was no need for further revelations from God. All that was necessary to understand the mystery of God had been revealed to his prophets and would be fulfilled at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. The voice from heaven then spoke to John and told him to take the open book from the hand of the angel. When he did so, the angel told him to eat the book that would make his stomach bitter, even though it be sweet as honey in his mouth. And John found this to be true. It was a sweet experience to be given the word of God. But once it was digested, it became bitter. The message John was to again declare before, and the word translated concerning could also be translated before. The message John was to declare before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings had a bitter element to it. Now, what was it he was to declare, to proclaim, for to prophesy means to proclaim. What was the contents of this little book that John was to digest and then declare? I'm convinced it's the gospel. It was a revelation of God's dealing with man, his purposes for man, his plan for salvation. And that is good news. It's sweet as honey if it's accepted. But if the gospel is rejected, it becomes a bitter message indeed because it becomes a message of condemnation. I'm convinced this vision is simply a reaffirmation of the church's role in calling mankind to repentance. The warnings concerning the effects of sin around us and within us are not enough. That's why God commissioned the church. 
And here John is told to again proclaim the message to many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. He had earlier been commissioned as an apostle to make disciples of all nations, to be Christ's witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the remotest part of the earth. The Great Commission is simply now being reaffirmed in the context of calling men to repentance. That is our job today. Well, the next vision expands this thought as it presents the witness of the church. On into the 11th chapter. And there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and, and make merry. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And that hour there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, to just read that, we just go, whoa! <laughs> what did I just read? We've got to keep it in context. We've got to seek to understand what's being communicated here in some images that are supposed to play on our minds and our hearts. What we just saw concluded the second woe, the sixth trumpet, the final warning. God has warned man through nature, 
through the effects of sin in his personal life and society at large, and through the proclamation and witness of the church. All that remains in this vision is for the seventh trumpet to sound. But before we're given a vision of the sounding of the seventh trumpet, we're given a vision that dramatizes the church's role as witness. And it shows man's response to that witness. It's a scary picture when you read it. But I think it makes sense. Well, the vision opens with John being given a measuring rod and told to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it. But he's told not to measure the outer court of the temple because it's been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, what's meant by this vision, we can't be absolutely sure. However, since the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed some 24 years before the vision, it's doubtful that it has any relevance to a literal temple, even one that might come sometime in the future. I'm convinced it's most likely a reference to the church, which is called the temple of God several times in the New Testament. If that's true, John is marking out the church. He's separating it from the world. He's making a clear-cut distinction between those who belong to God and those who don't. Then we find that God has commissioned two witnesses to prophesy to those who don't. For the same length of time, they are allowed to desecrate God's holy city. Now, the 24 months and the 1260 days both equal three and a half years, if you figure that out. And three and a half is half of what? Half of seven. The complete, perfect number. Three and a half, therefore, came to symbolize something that was incomplete or imperfect. A period of time when longings were unfulfilled and aspirations unrealized. A time when men... We're waiting for something to happen. It can therefore readily stand for the period of time between Christ's first and second comings. A time during which unrepentant men desecrate everything that is holy, particularly the gift of God. And a time during which Christians plead in spiritual sackcloth for men to repent. The two witnesses because there must be two or more witnesses for a testimony to be valid, are then represented by two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, the lampstands, we readily understand. We've already seen the churches pictured as lampstands, as lights in the world. The olive trees don't make sense until we realize that the lamps burned, what? Olive oil. The olive trees. Therefore represent the source of power that enables the lampstands to burn brightly in the world. 
These witnesses are then pictured in the judgmental role of prophets, continuing the ministries of Elijah, who called down fire from heaven to consume two groups of 50 soldiers who had been sent to take into the king and who shut up the sky for three and a half years. And Moses, who turned the water to blood and announced the plagues of Egypt. Now, the witness of the church may not always be confirmed as dramatically as that. You know, I haven't done any of that lately. But it has been miraculously confirmed numerous times in many ways through the activity of the Spirit. And the message is still the same. John then sees the prophets attacked by the beast of the abyss, Satan or one of his agents, and apparently defeated. Their bodies are disgraced for three and a half days in the street of the great city called Sodom, or immorality, and Egypt, or bondage. During this time of apparent defeat, men from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations view the remains and rejoice because the prophetic voice has been silenced. But then, to their horror, the breath of God revives the prophets, confirms their reward as he did for Elijah by taking him to heaven and punishes those who tried to silence them. I believe this is a picture of the continuing struggle between the world and the church. When the church gets really aggressive, the world fights back. And at times, it even seems to destroy the church. Before long, the church is back, stronger than ever, revived by God, and once again calling men to repent. And some do listen. Some do repent and give glory to God. And we see this taking place in the world today. I just read this week about the church and how it's growing in India. It's amazing. Amazing things are taking place under the radar of government and social restrictions. When people think they've squashed the church. When Satan thinks he's won, God brings it back to life. We need that assurance, even in our own country today. Some listen. Now, I believe that this Interpretation is correct because it would have given great encouragement to the Christians of John's day. They had been faithfully and courageously trying to witness to the Roman Empire, but their witness was seemingly being stamped out by Roman persecution. This vision would assure them that God's prophetic voice in the world cannot be silenced. And those who try to do so will either eventually repent and give glory to God or be condemned for fighting against God Almighty. Now, this interpretation also gives hope to the church down through the ages and even today. And I believe that is a valid test of any interpretation of the visions of Revelation. If our interpretation wouldn't have been relevant for the Christians of the first century, it's not valid. If it had relevance for the Christians 
in the first century, it surely has application today because God never changes and his purposes are still the same. Anytime you read interpretation of Revelation, ask yourself, would the early Christians have understood it this way? If not, something's wrong with that interpretation. It was written for their sake as well as ours. Well, the final warning is now complete. Nothing remains but for the final trumpet to sound. And that's what we see pictured next. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give the reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints. And to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. At the sounding of the seventh trumpet, John heard the heavenly choir singing the original version of the Hallelujah Chorus. And he saw the 24 elders fall on their faces and worship God, thanking Him for bringing time to an end and beginning His glorious reign. And now instead of calling Him the One who is, who was, and who is to come, they now refer to Him only as the Almighty who is and who was. For he had now come in great power to begin his eternal reign on earth, the new earth. The nations had fought against him, but he had won. It was now time to reward the prophets and the saints and all who reverenced his name and to punish those who had brought destruction on the earth. The temple of God was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was visible to the faithful Full access to the very presence of God Almighty was now granted to those who belonged to Christ. But for those who fought against him, there was only flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and earthquake and a great hailstorm. Rewards and punishments were meted out according to the demands of justice. The end had come and the eternal destiny of all men was sealed. Some were given eternal access to his presence, and others were condemned to eternal banishment from his presence. All had been given adequate opportunity to accept his offer of salvation, but some had refused to listen. Some had refused to heed the warnings. That's the message. Of chapters 10 and 11. Very obviously, it's a picture of what's been taking place on earth since Christ commissioned his church 
and what will continue until Christ comes in glory to receive us into his presence. Obviously, that's not the end of Revelation. Next week, we're going to see the birth of Jesus. That doesn't come after the second coming. So the vision starts again. Another picture. God wants us to see this. He wants us to get it. He has expressed it very simply and plainly in the rest of the New Testament. And he's taken this special book and said, I'm going to paint some pictures that will just burn images into their minds and their hearts. Let it happen. Don't be put off by things that sound weird when you read them. Read this again. Think it over again. Get a picture of the struggle that the church faces. Get a picture of the defeat that sometimes we feel, but yet the promise of resurrection and victory through Christ. That's the pictures we get in Revelation. God has given us warnings. He has warned us about the future. In love, he has warned us. He warns us through nature. He warns us through that emptiness that we feel without him and the guilt of sin that overpowers us and the despair that can be felt in our world. He warns us through the church and through his word. So what about you this morning? How have you responded to the warnings God has given? I pray you've heard them. You've responded to them. Your presence here indicates a willingness to listen. But your presence doesn't necessarily indicate a commitment to obedience and to accepting the offer of eternal life. If you've not embraced the gift of the gospel personally, if you have not said, I, I see, I understand, I know what the future holds, and I want the gift of eternal life made possible through your son, if you've not personally responded to that, this message is having no effect on you. And I don't preach to entertain you. These visions aren't given to just be curiosities for us to intellectualize or to touch our heart and to draw us in obedience to a God who is crying out and has been crying out from the very first sin in the garden to come back and embrace him and respond to his gift of grace. There are a lot of things in the world that draw us apart. A lot of things that take up our life. We try to cut out pieces to honor God, but that's not enough. We've got to respond by giving ourselves to Him completely. And by refusing to be drawn apart from, from His presence by the things of this world. If you need to make a personal commitment to the Lordship of Christ... I pray you've heard the warnings and you'll respond today. Let's stand.